You're listening to the Law & Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. Hey everyone, welcome to the Law & Business Podcast. We're in the middle of season two and it's a pleasure to have you with us. My name's Anthony Verna, Verna Law, where we focus on intellectual property and advertising law. Today with me is my patent agent, Will Jakes. Hello everyone. Hey Will, thanks for coming. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Anthony. <laughs> and Will is not just the patent agent for Verna Law. He's also a patent marketer and as well as monetization expert over at Amanus LLC. How'd yeah. I do? Yeah, you did very well. We always try to tell folks how to make money from their wall that... art rather than just... <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. Well, I think that's something a lot of people don't quite realize is, is, that, is that getting the patent is the first step, but you also have to make money with all of your intellectual property. That's the part of having the business. Absolutely. It's an asset of value, and you should try to monetize that if you're going to spend the time and dollars to actually go about getting the patent. It should at least, you know, allow you to protect a product that you can sell in the marketplace, either you or your licensee. I wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> I know that you're not going to disagree with me. No, not at all. I want to start everybody with patent basics because that's not something we've covered on the podcast before. It's also our relationship is fairly new in the clock of time. (laughs) And so let's bring everybody up to speed with a little bit of of patent basics. And let's talk about what what makes an invention patentable. Kind of three broad classes, Anthony, if I would say. The first thing is you got to At least assure yourself that what it is that you believe is an invention is actually an invention. That means it's new, you know, or it's novel. And we'll get into some questions around what makes something new or novel. But that's the first thing that people should try to consider. The next thing is, does it involve something that would not be obvious? And and obviousness is a very interesting part of patent law. Oh, Uh, don't don't we know. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, obviousness really depends on how people who are skilled in the art may view what it is that that you've invented. So we're not talking about inventing in the area of medicine and then not to be pejorative, but the plumber is the person or the art that's being quoted against that is someone who's skilled in the art. So you wanna make sure that someone who's skilled in the art would not have come up with your idea. Understood. The last thing, and, and this is where a lot of my clients tend to have a little bit of an issue, and that is it has to be useful. It has to you know, have utility. And this utility or usefulness that I'm talking about is something that you actually have to describe in your patent application in the specification. So, for instance, my clients come to me and they say, I have a great idea. And that's when I usually freeze. <laughs> but I have a great idea. And I say, well, you know what? I think that's a great idea as well. Now, how does it work? You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> great idea, but I've not enabled it. I've not enabled the public to be able to take my invention and actually make it and use it. And let's say have the intended results you know, from that invention that I thought should be there. So those are kind of three very broad classes, 
you know, of things that you need to consider when you're talking about getting a patent. So let's start at what new or novel means. This invention must never have been made public in any way before the date on which the patent application is being filed. What does it mean to be new? <laughs> you know, it's a very good question. And even given my experience with the patent law, one tries to look at it in the positive, but it's almost impossible to look at it in the positive, <laughs> right? To, to make a positive statement around what's new. The way we look at what's new is what has not been already disclosed. Okay, and so what the patent office is going to do when you send an application in is to try and show that what you believe is, quote unquote, an invention, right. you know, uh, they're not in the business of actually giving you patents, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> they're defenders at the gate. They they're are defenders at the gate. And actually, they're there to protect us all. But what they will do is a search to see whether or not that idea, concept, or invention that you believe is an invention does it in fact, you know, was it ever done before by anyone? And so they have certain rules, and it gets to be a little bit complicated, and I gotta let you know that even I struggle with this from time to time, and so I always have my references close at hand. But well, I think we all struggle with these gray areas. When you're dealing with law, there are always gonna be gray areas no absolutely. matter what you're doing. Absolutely, and you would know that best, uh, <laughs> Anthony. But one of the things we have to you know, keep in mind is that when the patent office is looking for whether or not something is new, it wants to see whether or not there's been a prior public disclosure. And that disclosure of information, you know, could have been done in any manner whatsoever. It could have been in a publication. It could have been on a website. It could have been done at a presentation, you know. But wherever that, you know, uh, information that discloses your invention, if it were ever made and it was publicly accessible, then that would be a reason for them not to allow you to get that patent. One of the ones that searchers and, and a lot of people are familiar with is the idea of whether or not there are other patented documents, you know, or I should say patent documents or patent applications that describe your invention, you know, prior to your describing uh, your invention. I'm reminded of a story at my first law firm out of law schools. Now we're talking, you know, 14 <laughs> some years ago. We're, we're all dated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was reviewing an invention disclosure yeah. form, and in looking at it, it was an improvement to help line up a goose hitch trailer. Mm -hmm. And I went to talk to the partner, and I, and I said, Scott, I think we've already received an invention disclosure that was very similar to this. I believe mm -hmm. that a few weeks ago, I recall doing one that, that was similar. Yeah. And Scott poo-pooed my concern, sadly, which I don't think was the correct move, because in a situation like that, one, if there is a conflict, obviously, the law firm would be conflicted out of representing both clients. But two, mm -hmm. if you're the junior patent applicant in that particular situation, that could be an easy rejection that, hey, two months prior to your filing, we received something very similar, correct? It could be. It could be. And we'll kind of talk a little bit uh, more about that uh, later. Mm -hmm. But let's suffice to say what I want you to key on right now is it has to be publicly accessible. Okay. Right? Because there's some disclosures that are made internally between the inventors themselves. It never leaves the room. It is generally not 
public. It Understood. is when these disclosures are done in large forums, you know, they're done on websites, they're done even trade in shows. libraries, trade shows, anywhere where the public has access to that information, whether or not they actually read it is not the point of the patent office. <laughs> but if it were available, then it would be cited against you as what we call prior art. A reason not to allow you to have a patent. Let's talk just very briefly about why the cost of searching for these kinds of uh, documents can be exorbitant. You know, it's, it's a business call. Sure. You've got to kind of play against your budget, your wallet, and the risk associated with not finding anything. As always. The one that I always tell my clients is beware of this. It could be a disclosure in any language. Ah. So if the disclosure is in French because somebody in Nice may have similarly invented it and the patent office finds that, then your invention is now not going to be considered new or novel. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it doesn't have to be in English, which means you're kind of caught uh, with trying to make a decision, you know, as to how deep, you know, and how broad is going to be the scope of your search for these documents or for quote unquote what might have been your invention ahead right. of you. And it, it tends to be, you know, one of those decisions that the patent attorney and the, the client really have to kind of consider budget risk and whether or not they want to go that deep. I think a lot of people don't realize the job of intellectual property attorneys and patent agents is to help with assessing that risk. Yes, yes, absolutely. What I always try to advise clients to do then is we can do the search, we can make it minimal, we can make some adjustments or assessments, I, I guess I should say, mm -hmm. based on the results that we get back, but your insurance is to not tally. It's to not delay. If you believe that you have something waiting a year or kind of, you know, fumbling it in your mind, so to speak, is not necessarily the right approach. You, ha you really have to be committed not only to your invention, but you have to be committed to the idea of getting a patent if, right. in fact, it's something that's going to add value to your invention. And let's talk about that one year, by the way, because an inventor gets a year's worth of disclosure to the public, correct? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So, you know, there are some exceptions to these bars, so to speak, that uh, the patent office, at least the U U.S. patent office, puts in front of you. So those bars, just to kind of state them succinctly, is if there is a disclosure with a prior public availability date, then that's something that's a bar. If it's published as a U.S. patent or a foreign patent or a patent application, that would be a bar. Let's kind of deal with some of the exceptions to that. And so you brought out uh, very gracefully that you will be allowed at least one year or less prior to filing your patent application to have this sort of a disclosure as long as that disclosure was done by you yourself mm -hmm. or a joint inventor or a party in which let's say has some interest it could be an employer it could be a group that you've assigned your rights to in some way but those kind of disclosures are protected for a period of one year or less and uh, again, these grace periods can have intervening art. I, do, I don't want to get too deep into that. That's fine. Yeah, but you know, let's suffice it to say, if you're in control or a party that you're associated with is in control, then that prior art would not be cited against you. Also, mm -hmm. the U.S. is really the only country that gives inventors that one-year grace period. So for most <laughs> patent attorneys, most patent agents, 
are going to advise clients to file ASAP when mm -hmm. an invention really is created mm -hmm. because you don't get that grace period elsewhere. And if you want to take your invention and move it to other countries and have it protected in Europe, have it protected in Asia, Canada, Mexico, you're just not getting that grace period. Yeah, it's very difficult to uh, do that. And I by law, actually have to work with attorneys and agents in those other jurisdictions, what we might say in the United States to be foreign jurisdictions. But, uh, you know, I would have to work through them in order to assess, you know, patentability or sure. to get a patent for you. But let's say this, be it good or be it bad, in the <laughs> worldview, in the worldview, we do have an advantage of this grace period. We're actually given even 12 more months of an advantage by being able to file in the United States what we call a provisional patent application. Now, that, that's a tricky matter, but what it essentially allows one to do is to file a quote-unquote application on your invention without necessarily needing to make a claim. I advise clients to use this when they're still kind of working on some aspects of their invention. There may be more than one embodiment that they may want to claim in their regular patent application. And so what the USPTO has allowed you to do is to file this thing ahead of time and then within a year or less of mm -hmm. that filing be able to file your regular patent application once you're kind of sure about what it is you're doing. Understood. Let's move on to having an inventive or not obvious step in this new or novel invention. It's a tricky subject. What does it mean to be inventive? What does it mean to be not obvious? Good question. And I, and I only ask the good ones. Yeah, a somewhat difficult one to explain sometimes. But a person who is skilled in the art may be able to view what it is you've claimed to be an invention, and they themselves would consider that to be something that is well known in that art, and something that would have been easily, I won't use the term derived, but right. would have been easily enabled just given the skill set that they already have. These don't come by way of communication, they're actually shown in other documents. And in these prior art documents that I spoke about earlier, particularly in patents, one would look into a patent and let's say you wanted to, you wanted to file a pencil with a, an eraser that was orange and prior to you there was a pencil with an eraser, you know, that was blue, you know, just to kind of keep sure. things simple. It would have been obvious to one skilled in the art to say that you can make erasers of many different colors and there, you know, more than enough uh, evidence that erasers could be done in different colors. It just hadn't been done, but it would have been obvious. One of the classic examples that I remember from law school are headphones. And headphones, you know, in the 60s and 70s were very big and bulky. And it had the bigger RCA jack as well. Mm -hmm. Well, as technology advanced, eventually headphones were able to be miniaturized so that the sound quality was just as good, but the size was smaller. And the Patent Trademark Office said, well, no, wait, it's obvious. If you can make them this size, it's obvious that you can make it that size. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and further to your point, Anthony, in many cases under these obviousness type rejections that you might receive from PTO, they will use more than one document, two documents in order to make their point. Right. And so in one document, just to use your example, it would have, you know, an invention for the large headphone. You want to come along and miniaturize this, but in that same area, same class, same general mm -hmm. industry, there will be patents that talk about miniaturizing, you know, electronic components. And and so if one were to, again, simply speaking, put those two documents together, it would have been easy for a person of skill in that particular art to say, I have large headphones, I have small electronics, I could combine them, and now I could have smaller headphones. But on the same token, just because the Patent and Trademark Office says that it's obvious doesn't really mean that it is, because in a situation like this with the headphones, it's really hard to miniaturize a lot of electronics to get it to a certain point. So therefore, it's not necessarily obvious, you know, even though there might be a couple documents, it's not always necessarily obvious. And that particular rejection of obviousness, you know, is something to fight. Yes, absolutely. And this is where, you know, a knowledge of the law, of the patent law, as well as, and I never belittle the idea that one really has to know the art that they're working in. Again, going back to my early inventor who said, I have a great idea, you know, one must be able to actually do what it is they, they say they're going to do. But, you know, in answering your question about an obviousness, you know, one who is skilled may be able to make that argument, and it's a reasonable argument to make to the patent office to say, no, this would not have been obvious because at the time, no one would have known how to, quote unquote, let's say, package this type of electronics into a headphone. Uh, the art may in fact have taught them that in order to get the best sound quality, it had to be of a larger size. And so if you find references in those documents, or I should say words in those documents that they've uh, cited against you that actually teach away from what it is you're doing, you can sometimes get around these obviousness claims that the patent office you know, might put in front of you. Sure. And the Supreme Court has tried to clarify what obviousness <laughs> is, but as we can imagine, one of the issues that personally I have with, with the Supreme Court as an IP attorney is that they're just not intellectual property attorneys. And I think some issues like obviousness get cluttered rather than clarified with Supreme Court opinions. And in this particular instance, I mean, we have a decision from 2007 that states that the Patent and Trademark Office can take two references and combine those references and come out with an obviousness rejection. Mm -hmm even if somebody skilled in the art might not necessarily put those two patents or documents or whatever else together as well. Mm -hmm. So to me, that muddles it, what it, obviousness it is. It does muddle because then it puts forth the, the tenet in patent law that there must have been a suggestion. And it is not something that uh, the USPTO gets to pull out of the air. It has to be, you know, resident within the documents that they're citing against you. But there has to be a suggestion or at least a motivation mm -hmm. of some sort in that document that suggests that these two things could have or would have, you know, over some period of time, be combined in order to produce the invention that you yourself are trying to get a patent on that they said, you know, it's obvious. And that's where the arguments tend to stem from. You know, what is motivated? You know, what is a suggestion? What's a reasonable suggestion? Again, 
someone who understands the technical area that they're working in with a patent agent, patent attorney that also has an understanding of that area has a better right. chance uh, of, of, of getting around those ob objections. Let's divulge for just one moment. This is probably a, a topic for one of your later podcasts, <laughs> Anthony, but the simplicity of actually writing the patent application and writing the claims in the first place has a way of allowing you to get around or, or see down the road what may be a potential obviousness claim that may come up against you. And so you really want to look out, you know, and have some sense of what's evolving in your industry, what may happen in your industry. And even to the extent you may not be able to claim an invention in the future that is unknown today, <laughs> you know, one could, in fact, kind of protect themselves by at least signaling to the world and signaling to you know, judges that this is something that would have been contemplated. This is something that would have been known. And just keep it simple. They're not all scientists, and so you don't want them chasing around trying right. to figure out what you meant. So just tell them. You know, this also goes back to really the beginning of the relationship between a potential you know, patent applicant and the agent or, or attorney, where the agent or attorney is should be asking, what's your business plan, mm -hmm. and how long have you been in this business? I mean, how many times have we had phone calls with people who are like, um, yeah, I've never done this before, and I just kind of had this idea, and I figured I'd start the business right here. Yeah, <laughs> with, it's usually without my, any big, experience. <laughs> my biggest red flag <laughs> is, again, the inventor with the idea, right? But, you know, it is not necessarily the attorney or agent's job to uh, assess. You know, that, that, that is correct. Yeah, it yes. is not necessarily their job. But someone who takes the profession the way, you know, the folks at Verna Law would do it is to really kind of talk about the economics of what it is they're trying to do. Case in point, just in a, uh, a conversation with an inventor the other day who I guess miraculously, you know, asked the question, this is an invention that should be worth millions of dollars. <laughs> and, and I said, well, what did you check that against? And she had not. Right. And so a very quick, simple, you know, kind of calculation to look at her market, look at the market size, and look at where her invention would be placed sure. helped her to make a better decision. So let's highlight a useful application. I think that is something that a lot of people don't really understand what it means to be useful for this invention to be patentable. Usefulness. Well, what the law has allowed us to do, very differently from the way inventions were, say, handled way back in the day of the guilds, right? <laughs> so in the guilds, all the secrets, all the knowledge was held within the guild. And only people who were members of the guild were able to practice because they were the only ones that knew. But our forefathers were smart enough to understand that if you wanted to grow the economy, then one of the ways of doing that was to share that information. But in order to get people away from the idea of separateness in the gills, you know, well, what is it that would be required mm -hmm. in order for them to want to share this information? And so what they did was they allowed you a period of time, you know, your, the term of your patent to disallow anyone else from practicing that invention. And of course, you could always license it to them. Sure. You know, that's a different conversation. But essentially, it gave you some of an, an advantage to keep others from practicing what it was you invented for a period of time. 
but there's a trade-off. And that trade-off in terms of usefulness is it had to be something that they could actually make and use. And so the way you describe what's in your patent and hopefully the way you have developed your invention is it has to work because you have to describe it in such a way that someone else, particularly a person who's skilled in the art, would be able to take you know, the contents of your patent, be able to reproduce, to some degree, your invention. So those people who sent us an invention disclosure for a teleportation device, probably not going <laughs> All right, not working. Well, <laughs> not going anywhere. Well, not that we know of. <laughs> and one cannot use, you know, the Star Trek episodes <laughs> as a way of proving their invention. <laughs> the way I look at usefulness is, mm -hmm. in a copyright law standpoint, mm -hmm. what is useful will not be able to be copywritten. And this is a mirror image Absolutely. of that. Because in copyright law, people ask me often, can I copyright clothing? No, it's a useful article. You actually, you know, it has utility. You put mm -hmm. it on you, mm -hmm. and you're no longer naked, and it'll keep you warm, or maybe it'll keep you cold. Now we have special fabrics. So clothing is useful, no copyright law there. Yeah. But the picture that might be screen printed on your shirt is not useful, right? There's no utility to that particular picture. That falls under copyright law. Yeah. These are great ideas that you're coming up with, Anthony, because, you know, it's one of those areas that I'd like to see almost change in patent law to some degree that these things, you know, that have utility that we may not particularly pay attention to are at some point will be given some level of credence. Just very quickly, the economy that we work in, particularly this digital economy that we work in, there's been a lot of case law that makes it very, very difficult, you know, in order to achieve a patent for right. something that just uses a computer and we're just kind of manipulating some numbers. But in terms of its use and the usefulness of those things, uh, there's some really creative ideas that are coming you know, into the marketplace that people don't quite understand today until we look backward that aid things like, can I gain additional market share by doing this particular thing? And can I show that this particular thing that I'm doing is gaining market share? Now, is market share or the increase of something in finance something that should be considered to be a patentable arena, patentable subject matter? Today, maybe not. In the future, maybe that's someplace that uh, we go to. Well, but, uh, I'll tell you what, we can definitely do two hours on <laughs> computers and software oh, and patents easily. and basically all of the hair you pulled out of your head yeah. over, over well, all yeah, of that. Well, yeah, yeah, well, you know, I have none, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, the audience, just so that you know, but I think I lost it all do, doing this sort of thing. But essentially, to get back to your original uh, question about usefulness, you know, it has to be something that someone can do, you know, without a lot of undue experimentation, right? So it can't take Understood. them 25 years in order to attempt to reproduce what it is you have. I won't say tricks, but there are certainly methods by which, you know, one may be able to protect their invention, get a broad claim on their invention, but the law only requires that you show quote unquote what we used to call a best mode or at least sure. an embodiment that the general public or people could actually take your patent and they could reproduce at least that embodiment as it is described in your patent. Well, thank you very much for being here on this episode. 
I know coming up, we've got another episode with Will. We've got an episode with Michelle Carter, founder of NewsFunder. We've got some episodes coming up with some uh, professional bloggers, people who make money blogging. So keep <laughs> listening here to the Law & Business Podcast. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Anthony. This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to Anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914 358 6401.